The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. For those watching online, you don't know there's about, I don't know, a thousand kids heading out right now. So I'm not going to say anything too scary or serious as we begin, but um, I'm going to start with a a little reinforcement of an announcement that Pastor Milton uh, made at the beginning of the service. And if you missed that, it's because you don't show up to church on time, right? So (laughs) maybe today is the day to... I'm sorry to call out anyone who just walked in. Uh, Maybe it's... Okay, okay. It's, it's a day of repentance here at the King's Chapel. Uh, and, and what he mentioned was this Inklings Conference. And if you're anything like me, you think to yourself when you hear that, I have no idea what that is, right? Actually, maybe not. Maybe you know exactly what it is. But basically, it's a conference in which uh, we discuss and, and unpack some of the teachings, some of the, the experiences, the testimonies of some of the greatest intellectuals in the English language in the modern era that happen to be firm believers in Jesus who came to Christ uh, in, in circumstances where they would have every reason to be intellectually skeptical and, and push back on some of these things. So people like J.R.R. Tolkien, who you may have heard of, or C.S. Lewis. And so if you're wondering, what do I do with this conference? If this is something that interests you personally, you come to it. If it's something where you have a friend who, who may not know the Lord yet, but who sees themselves as intellectually um, open, this is a place to invite them into, to be able to ask questions. We talk about the different environments in our church and moving people in a process of discipleship from environment to an environment. And what I mean by that is something like the fall festival. We call that our front porch. Anyone can come in. It doesn't take a whole lot of commitment. They're not going to get asked super serious questions depending on who they talk to at the fall festival. <laughs> But we hope to move them from that front porch to what we call our our living room environments. Living room environments like our women's mingles and our men's breakfasts where it's a little more formal, it's a little more put together, it's a little more uh, of a higher barrier to entry in some sense, but we can talk about real life and real questions. And then we hope to move people from those environments to, uh, the sermon title is a place at the table, to these kitchen table kind of environments. Small groups are what we call them. Uh, They they can happen informally, they can happen on a schedule formally, but these places where you can fight, you can laugh, you can ask deep questions, you can pray for each other, you can be honest with each other. The kitchen table is where life happens in my home and where where it happens in, in this, our church home. The Inklings Conference is really a living room. So if you have people who are willing to check out the front porch, maybe this is a time to move them into an environment where they can be taught cool things, learn some things, and also ask good questions. So that's my Inklings plug. Mom, you're welcome. Um, If you have questions or are curious about that, uh, Brett, one of our uh, professors, teachers at that conference, he's going to be at the Connection Center between services. So you can track him down. Look for someone who looks really smart, okay? And that's how you will know who to talk to. Um, I'm going to do something a little unusual this morning. I'm going to share some good news, and I'm going to give you the good news, and then I'm going to give you the good news. Does that sound good? Can I do that for you this morning? I'm going to give you a little bit of good news, and then we're going to end with some good news. And good news number one is, as you know, Pastor Bill, uh, he had this uh, prostate cancer diagnosis. He went in for surgery a couple weeks ago, and the outcome of the surgery was, was really good, really successful. They contained and removed the cancer. So he is now officially uh, cancer-free as far as they can tell. Can we praise God for that? Yeah. He's He's still recovering from a significant surgery. He's still extremely uncomfortable right now. And so keep praying for him because he, he does need uh, to continue to heal. But what this has revealed also as he's 
put out this diagnosis is one, he doesn't want any special treatment. He would have rather probably hidden the shadows, gotten the surgery, and pretended he was on Top Sail Island for six weeks. Um, but now we know, so we're going to pray for him. But it also revealed that there's, there's needs all over the church. There's people with very similar issues who maybe we don't know about. We need to be praying for each other. We need to know each other where we can lift up our prayers and concerns and, and let people know what's actually going on because a lot of us are dealing with things in the shadows that are quite difficult. Um, so that's the good news. And, and uh, I would say if I can communicate on behalf of Pastor Bill, who's watching online, he would just say thank you. Thank you for your, your prayers. Thank you for your support, your notes, your little gifts. Thank you for not visiting him. Um, thank you for all these things. And, and I'm 100% I'm serious about this. This month, October, my wife told me is Pastor Appreciation Month. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I, I don't know what that is. Um, I guess once November rolls in, you don't have to appreciate us anymore. Uh, but... <laughs> Really what I think is I've reflected on these last couple weeks as, as my family's walked through some, some minor trials and my dad's been walking through this trial. I think really what I see is that, that we just appreciate you. We appreciate you so much as a church. This, this body of believers, this community, it's, there's nothing like it. Like there's nothing, I mean, hopefully there is. Hopefully there's other churches like this all around us. But it's just been so amazing to see your prayers, your service, and, and most importantly, beyond all that, your commitment to making the name of Christ known in, in the midst of a culture who is desperate, desperate for something. They don't even know what, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so none of these things go unnoticed by, by your pastors. None of these things go unnoticed, most importantly, by your Lord. God sees your faithful service for his name. God sees it, and you matter. You matter, and the way you live for Jesus matters. So I just want to tell you, it is such a, a sacred privilege and an, and an honor to pastor in this community. I feel so, so fortunate, and it is truly humbling work. We're going to see how important this work is in this passage this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7. That's what we've been doing. If you don't know our church, what we do is we go through Scripture every week, and we take Scripture very seriously. We believe this is the authoritative Word of God. It is his, his manual for living. It's so much more than that. This is power. And so we study this word together, and we're in Mark chapter 7, but we're going to read through the entirety of the passage in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24, and then we're going to uh, flip over to Matthew 15. Because in Matthew 15, Matthew's gospel uh, records the same story, but just with a little more detail. So as we go through the sermon, that's where we're going to draw out some more detail. But here, Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. And from there, he, that is Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. How's that sound? Some of you can identify with that. Jesus is, is not unable to identify with us in our weakness. And he's been ministering, he's been pouring his, his life out in ministry, and he wants to go into a place for at least a little while where nobody knows him. Um, that sounds good to many of you. What I want to encourage you with is, is this, though. Jesus often pursued solitude to be with his father, solitude, but never isolation, never. He goes into these places for a purpose, to spend time with his father, and he is, he is never out of tune with the mission that the Lord has called him to, what his heavenly father has called him to in each place he goes. Solitude, not isolation. Do you understand the difference? So here we go. He could not be hidden, though. His reputation has spread. He's gone into this far-off region, and it says, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell down at his feet. Notice that word unclean. That'll come up again. Unclean spirit. 
heard of him and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray as we continue to walk through this passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that it is living and active. Lord, I pray that as we encounter you through your scriptures, through this, this divine revelation of you and your character and your person, Lord, I pray that we would be changed we would be changed to become more and more the people you've called us to do. Lord, I pray that, that anything Mark says this morning would be forgotten. Anything that comes from the gospel of Mark, however, would be remembered and retained, Lord, and, and would transform our lives, Lord. I pray that, that you would teach us what we don't know so we can do what we don't do for the sake of your name, your kingdom, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we, we now flip over to Matthew. Go to Matthew 15 starting in verse 21. Same story. You've heard the whole story. You have some questions. You're wondering, what is it about the way uh, Jesus acts with this woman? It's a little strange. And we're going to start again in verse 21. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered the house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Jesus, ministering uh, constantly, pouring himself out, he seeks to withdraw from these relentless crowds into this region of Tyre and Sidon by the Mediterranean Sea. So if you could throw the map up on the slide, um, this will kind of show you where Tyre and Sidon are. So Jesus has been ministering in two places, Galilee, which is his, his home region, which is around the Sea of Galilee, and he's been ministering down in the south in Judea near Jerusalem. But for some reason, for only one time, as far as we know, in his adult ministry, he leaves his home people. He leaves the Jewish people, the people of Israel, and he goes up to these coastal towns, Tyre and Sidon, uh, along the coast. One trip. Maybe he took more. We, we just don't know of any other trips he took away from his covenant people, though he comes across Gentiles within Judea and um, and Galilee. So he goes to this place, and in this region, uh, if you ever played any old uh, nerdy computer games or anything like that, you'd be familiar with the Phoenician people. So there's about four of you here that know what I'm talking about. But basically, the Phoenicians uh, were famous for their maritime skills, their shipbuilding, their, their travel, their commerce over the water. They basically owned the Mediterranean Sea. And they were primarily from North Africa. So when you think of the Phoenicians, they're this, this North African culture and empire who, who dominated the seas. Well, they also had some, some outposts here in Tyre and Sidon, but these people were, were Syrians, uh, Assyrian kind of connections here. Uh, so they're different from these North African Phoenicians, and yet they have some of the same heritage. These are coastal towns, um, shipbuilders, sailors. And uh, they have regularly possessed this region, which is now actually occupied by the Roman Empire. And so Jesus takes a journey up here into Tyre and Sidon. And this place is not uh, Jewish, obviously. It's a Gentile region. And it's characterized by, by all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of worship of false gods, particularly a, a, a god of healing, or so they believed. And so this region is, is super religious in some sense. But with that spiritual influence, if it's not the great I am, if it's not God, it is dark spiritual influence. 
dark spiritual influence. And, and so that's what Jesus is walking into. He takes a journey here with his disciples, and this is unusual because Jesus made it very clear that he's on a mission to bring good news and to bring light specifically to the Jewish people first. First. Because he's come as Messiah. He's come to fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah. He's come to, to show who he is through his ministry and to reveal that he is the one that was prophesied about. And, but for some reason, for some reason that will only be made clear as we walk through the rest of this pas- passage, Jesus is being led by his father into this strange place, this foreign territory. And as far as we know, in his adult ministry, like I said, this is the only time he leaves his home country. This is significant. And I want you to understand the significance. Uh, does anyone remember the sermon that Pastor Bill preached on September 25th? <laughs> no? Um, take notes, please, okay, so you can turn back to these things. But the last time he preached on September 25th, he, he preached this pretty elaborate message on this fight that Jesus had, this argument that he had with Pharisees. And you remember he demonstrated how the Pharisees were so particular about taking like an eggshell of water and pouring it on their hands and, and washing their hands. They cared so much about this external cleanliness, eating the right foods, doing the right ceremonies. You remember this? Some of you? Okay, this is ringing a bell. And Jesus comes to them, and and he's had this all-out battle with them over the law because he sees the way they're seeking to practice the law, and it's all about externals. It's all about this, this external cleanliness. This is the scene right before he heads off to the coast. And he calls them out for their obsessive adherence to these, these traditions, these additions to the word of God. Endless washing of hands, washing of dishes, eating only certain foods in order to be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean while having hearts that are far from God. And he calls them out. And, and I think in that call out, I'm convicted I think we can all be rightly convicted when we realize that what matters to God is not how well you clean up to to head to church on a Sunday. What what matters to God is is not how perfectly curated your quiet time social media post is. What matters to God is not any of these things. It's not how silent your children are in public, or or, even though that's a, a, a wonderful thing if you can pull it off. But what Jesus says to the Pharisees is he he says, I don't care about all these externals. I care less about a clean exterior and much more about the purity of your heart. The purity of your heart. And this convicts me because can I tell you how often I am so much more concerned about my public reputation than I am about my private righteousness? Any of you feel that? So much more concerned about a public reputation than we are about our private righteousness. And and Jesus says, what it is all about is the purity of your heart before God, not all these external things, not uh, this social status. And and what's crazy is we know that. We know that so much of what we do is just just putting on a public front of how how we've got it together. And based on that, honestly, uh, sometimes dishonest public front, we categorize ourselves as superior to those that publicly don't have it together. Even though we wrestle with the exact same things behind the scenes, even though we're struggling with the same secret sins, we still draw these these arbitrary lines of distinction where we say, I am better than those people because at least I didn't, I don't know what, get caught, right? This is crazy. And the Pharisees do this this constantly. I I think so do we. And even the disciples, the close followers of Jesus we see in Scripture, they have this tendency too to make these these value judgments despite their own need of grace. 
despite our own need of grace, to make these value judgments of other people based on background, ethnicity, language, skin color, age, class, social status. They, they make all these judgments and categorize people as they see fit, and guess what? Their category is always superior. And if the Pharisees are anything like us, which I believe they are, Jesus rightfully calls them out, and he says, you're focused on the wrong things. And inevitably, what, what do you do in response to that? What do you do in response to conviction? But what you, you ought to do, what we ought to do, is repent and fall on the mercy and grace of God towards us. To change, to say, God, I, I see this in myself. I confess it to you and receive the goodness of his grace towards us even when we fail and, and falter. But what we often do instead, when we're called out by a loving friend or, or by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, is we begin to make excuses. We start to argue in our heads. We start to, to justify ourselves. We gossip, we slander, we, we have these dialogues in our own heads where we seek to argue our way out of, even argue with God, which doesn't make any sense, argue our way out of what we know is true. And so, so maybe the Pharisees would argue something like this in their own heads. Jesus can't possibly think that all these unclean people, all these people who don't follow the traditions, all these people who don't respect the law by adding their rules to it, these people, he cannot possibly think that they are more righteous than we do than we are. He just wants to do what he wants. He wants to eat what he wants. He wants to hang out with, he want, with who he wants. He doesn't want to wash his hands. He's all talk. And they would start having these, these dialogues that are just so ridiculous in their own heads. And watch what happens next. He leaves Israel. He walks away from these people. He, he goes and proves that what he is, what he is standing for is, is true. He leaves Israel. He takes a trip into a Gentile region surrounded by unclean people. At least that's the way the Jewish people would categorize them. Unclean people in which he is going to encounter exactly what he's been talking about. Someone who on the outside is unclean, an unclean Gentile woman who has a pure heart of faith. A pure heart of faith toward God. The exact thing that he is looking for and is desperate to find in Israel. So, so as we go through our outline, what we see here is a desperate request, a desperate request that comes to Jesus. Verse 22 of Matthew 15 says, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, by an unclean spirit. It, it seems like week after week, as I get up here to preach, some of my friends who know me really well will know this, that no matter what I'm preaching about, I get these object lessons leading up to what I'm preaching about. So if I'm going to be preaching something that, that convicts your heart, you better believe that God has convicted me plenty leading up to that moment. Or he's shown me some kind of illustration. He's, he's spoken to me in some way to prepare. Do you know that God still speaks? Do you know that as you encounter him in, in scripture, as you abide in him, you will become more and more in tune to be able to hear and distinguish his voice as he leads you. He does speak. He speaks. Are we, are we listening to him? Are we responding to him? Believer, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Do you know that he speaks to you? And do you have the faith and the confidence to respond in obedience as he leads you? He still speaks. He speaks to me as I, as I prepare to preach on Sundays. He speaks to each one of you as well, and often he speaks through you uh, to me, which is amazing. And so, so for better or worse, the Lord gives these object lessons. And this week, uh, in these last couple weeks, it's been a while since I've preached, but um, this sermon was no exception because I'll simply to the chase. Here in this passage, we see this woman coming in, in desperate need for her daughter. And I, uh, just a couple weeks ago, had this wonderful opportunity to be in the hospital with um, 
my two youngest daughters, my three-year-old and my one-year-old. And they, they were having some respiratory issues. My one-year-old was in uh, for four nights um, dealing with RSV and bronchiolitis and all this stuff, which I, I'm coming to discover a lot of people are dealing with right now. A lot of people, a lot of my friends have uh, had their children hospitalized recently with these issues. And, and many of you parents who have older children, you went through this kind of thing before. And so you know how challenging it is. You know how, how difficult it is as a dad or as a mom to be with your little children when they're struggling, hour after hour, minute after minute, you're just watching them labor for the next breath. It's miserable. It's help, this helpless feeling as you watch your, your precious little ones just seek to fill their lungs with air again and again and again. And thankfully, God brought us to that, and the kids don't seem to feel like anything happened to them. Um, and God has made our immune systems to be resilient. He's given doctors wisdom and skill to be able to, to help these children. And I thank God that we're born in, in this era in which we can receive this kind of care. It's, it's a great thing. And I don't bring up this family trial in order to, uh, to inspire any sympathy out of you for me. But rather, what I saw, and the reason I bring this up is what I saw was that my wife, Beth, Though she was exhausted, stressed out, fearful, all these things, I saw the unrelenting care she had for our little ones. Like, it's just, there's something about the love of a mom for little kids, right? It's, it's like an endless fount. It doesn't matter how much they're spent. There's something else, something left in the tank to care even more. And so I saw her spent but unyielding and taking care of those little girls. Actually, they've done studies on this. There's something truly unique about uh, mothers. When, um, when babies are born, I saw this in a documentary, so I'm, I'll, I can't too firmly vouch for its accuracy, but what they said in this documentary about babies and children, and I watched this when I was first having a, a baby, they, they showed that the brains of moms and dads change drastically when newborns come into their lives. So when you have your first child, this part of your brain opens up. It's like this fear response part of your brain that, that puts you on high alert. It opens up in both the new dad and the new mom. And that's why you have this experience of every ooh, every awe, every cough, every sniffle wakes you up in the middle of the night. And you respond rapidly to these things as a brand new parent. What's crazy is uh, for new parents, for a dad, that part of the brain that expands and, and becomes more alert and on high alert and protective during that period of time, it shrinks back to normal after about four months. <laughs> and guess what? With subsequent children, it does not open again. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> that is, uh, what's even crazier, though, is um, for the mom, this part of the brain that, that opens up, that puts the mother on high alert, guess when it returns to normal? Never. Never. Some of you know this. You're, you're in your 50s, 60s, and it's the same. Like you're, you're just, you still have that level of care, that level of attention, that, that level of commitment to, to protecting your children at any cost while, while dad is taking a nap on the couch. <laughs> but here, uh, I saw this, okay? I saw this just these last couple weeks in the hospital. My, my kids have a great mom. They have a, a wonderful mom, and she would do anything for them. She would say without hesitation that, that she would give her own life for theirs without hesitation, and I know that's true. Um, and, and that's how many mothers are. This is the kind of love that we see from this Syrophoenician mom. And I don't want to overemphasize this. We're, we're talking about the love of Jesus this morning, not the love of mothers. But we see in this the desperation of a mom for her little girl. 
And when this passage describes her as little, this doesn't necessarily mean that she's particularly small or young. What this means is that she's precious. She's precious to this mom. Beloved, but severely afflicted. She says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this. We'll have time to talk about this again in uh, Mark chapter 9 and in subsequent weeks, and it's come up already quite a bit. Um, but there's a few things that I want you to know, and these are, are some things that may be obvious to you uh, about this, this demonic oppression that we see in this passage. Number one, supernatural forces, including demons, are real and active in our world. They're real and active in our world. And I can attest to this reality from my own experience, but honestly, that doesn't matter because Jesus attests to the fact that these things are real and I trust him. I once heard this lecturer say, this was in an academic this setting, um, Christian academic setting, and this lecturer said that he had never come across a demon that couldn't be silenced by a prescription. And I thought to myself, what utter foolishness, what nonsense. We are, we are complex psychosomatic beings. There are many factors that affect us uh, mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, relationally. All these things matter. They're all wrapped into one thing. We can't separate these things. And we cannot afford to ignore the spiritual aspect of our lives. We are so prone to do this. To, to, to look to every other solution first and not consider the fact that we are in a real spiritual battle against malevolent forces that would seek to destroy Christians we have this, this deep-seated bias. It's like we're smarter than everyone else. We, we live in the West. We, um, I don't know, drive a Tesla or something like that. So, so we couldn't possibly be afflicted by these things. We're too smart to believe in these things. Or we do believe in these things as Christians, and we give some kind of intellectual assent to it. But we have these, these cr crazy assumptions that like all the demonic forces live overseas somewhere, somewhere else, right? But not here, not in our world, not in the West. Can I tell you, the majority world, everywhere else, they have no question about this. No question at all. They know the reality of this, this spiritual battle. It's overt and obvious, and they're simply willing to call a spade a spade. That same spiritual conflict, it is raging here in the West, in our context, and though we'd prefer to explain it away differently, disregard it, or ignore it, there is a spiritual battle in our midst. The second thing I want you to see is, is this is kind of an aside here, but, but we often refer to these kinds of events as, as demon possession. possession. And, I, and I just want to help you with this. That is not ac accurate biblical terminology. It is not. This idea of possession, it's something that's been uh, primarily informed by the cinema, honestly, in America. Movies like The Exorcist and every movie that's come since then, all the creepy stuff that comes back around uh, in October leading up to Halloween, it gives us this very extreme picture of something drastic and obviously evil and dark that happens, and, and it, it puts this demonic activity into this category of it has to be extremely alarming and disturbing in order to be demonic. And in the New Testament, that's not true. Actually, there's, there's ordinary people in the New Testament who struggle with different levels of, of oppression and opposition, and there's a whole range. There was, is one example of someone whose life is completely yielded to these spirits, and that, and that is uh, the guy known as Legion that we talked about a few weeks ago. 
who has a legion of demons cast out of him, who is, has been completely overcome, possessed by these things. That might be the only appropriate time in Scripture to refer to it that way. Actually, the, the appropriate terminology Scripture is demonized, demonized. And so I think that's a better word to use. In the Greek, it's daimonizomai, excuse me, daimonizomai. And why does that matter? Well, I think, I think it matters because we need to know that the people we come across, especially as we're out witnessing, as we're sharing the gospel with different people, you may have a, a full range of things that you confront. There's, there's demonic temptation. There is, there's demonic oppression. And there is this full yielding to darkness. There's a, a whole range in between of what we encounter in Scripture and what we encounter in real life. So we make categories because we want to comfort ourselves with these things. We say a Christian can be oppressed, but they cannot be possessed. Well, it doesn't matter. Possessed is not a a biblical word at all. At all. Demons oppress. They come after after people. They come after people. They come after the church. Uh, They oppose the work of God. But but here's, and you can ask me questions about that um, afterward. But you need to know you are in a battle. You are in a battle. A battle against the three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that is a profoundly spiritual battle. And we cannot ignore the weapons that we have as believers to wage that war. We are told to arm up for that battle, to put on the full armor of God. We are given weapons in Scripture, weapons of of fasting and prayer and the Word of God in order to, to stand firm against the enemy, to stand firm. The third thing I want you to see is this, that Jesus Christ has power over all. Sometimes when we have these kinds of discussions, it can stir up some fear and some anxiety in us. And if that's your your response to this, I just want to encourage you with, this is not trite. Jesus Christ has power over all. And you, believer, are indwelt by Jesus Christ. You are safe in his hands. You are safe. But he would call you to fight, to fight the spiritual battle. This is not a battle to fear, it's a battle to fight, to fully arm yourselves and be aware of the spiritual battle so that you're not deceived, so that you can stand firm, and so that you can experience victory in your life and in the lives of the people that you pray for in Jesus' name, because there is power in his name. So back to our passage. This is what's going on in in this woman's life. She's fallen at Jesus' feet, and she's begging for deliverance for her daughter. Now, we don't know what got her into this predicament. I told you Tyre and Sidon, it's, it's a place that's full of false religion, full of idolatry, uh, and, and in all likelihood, the way that the scripture talks about this region, full of demonic influence and activity, and she has, has somehow, this little girl has come under this oppression, and it's been afflicting her for long enough for her mother to seek help however she can get it. We don't know what her symptoms are. Sometimes we get told these symptoms, what's going on in these, these people's lives. We don't get that here. What we get is that that whatever this is, this oppression is, it is manifesting itself in in such a way in this little girl's life that it is obvious to her mother that she needs a supernatural solution. It is obvious to her mother that this is a spiritual problem. And Jesus doesn't disagree with her. He doesn't disagree. So she runs to Jesus. She throws herself at Jesus' feet and she begs him to help her. Utterly desperate. There's something about desperation that's good. It opens our eyes to the potential for the miraculous. I wonder how many of you have ever felt desperate. Anyone here ever felt desperate? And I wonder how many of you have ever felt desperate, and in that moment of desperation, you have seen the provision of God. You've seen his hand. You've seen how he's, he's come through in that moment of desperation. This is not 100% 
of the time, but I'm convinced that desperation is often, often a prerequisite for experiencing God's miraculous provision. It opens our eyes, it narrows our gaze, it heightens our dependence on God alone, and we seek him because we know we need him. So then we see this, this incredible desperation, and then we see an apparent rejection. It says in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Silence. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Notice this. The disciples want him to respond to this request. They want Jesus to respond to this request, not out of mercy, not out of compassion, but because she's annoying them. I wonder how often we act the same way. Ministry without compassion. Verse 24, he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's going on here? Like, this doesn't seem like the Jesus we've come to know. Jesus is so compassionate. He's so open to, to all kinds of people, all kinds of problems. He seems to have his arms open to, to pretty much anyone. And here is someone whose situation could not conjure more pity or sympathy. This is a mom who is desperate to help her little girl. Not only that, but her faith is obvious. She believes that Jesus can heal from a distance her oppressed daughter. Can you ask for more than that from somebody? Like, isn't this just what Jesus wants? Isn't this exactly the kind of situation that he so often responds to? But then he does this crazy thing. First, he ignores her, and then he says, look, I wasn't sent for you. I wasn't sent for you. Now, he's actually going to get even colder in his response in just a moment, but, but we need to understand this is not a limitation of his sympathy. It is not a limitation of his salvation for the Lord, but rather this is a statement about his priority, his priority. And what we see in Jesus, and this is a model for us, is he does not respond to every need. He does not respond to every good idea. He, he says this very clearly in John 5.19. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus has a mission. He will not deviate from his mission. He's only going to do what he sees the father leading him to do. And, and the, the majority of his mission is focused on this one task of authenticating his coming as the Messiah to the people of Israel. So he submitted to the Father. He's only going to do what the Father instructs him to do. And we can take note of this in our own lives. He's modeling lordship. He's modeling discipleship to us. He also knows that the fire of the gospel needs to be firmly established before it will effectively spread. And so he's going to establish the gospel in Israel, and then it's going to go from there to the rest of the world. This is his purpose. I, I was uh, recently at a campfire with my kids, and I was teaching them how to start a fire. And I was teaching them how you need to really concentrate your effort on a little bit of fire, a, a little bit of tinder, in order to make something that actually generates light and warmth. A well-tended small fire will eventually generate much more warmth and light than 100 matches lit, in, lit all around the campsite. That's just the way it works, and that's what Jesus has been doing. He's been establishing this gospel, this ministry, and so he's, he's, he's doing this, and he has a plan, and he has priorities, but it says in verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Help me. How many of you know that often the most desperate and honest prayers are very brief? Very brief. God does not need a lot of words to know what we need. And here, 
in her desperation, she chokes out these words, Lord, help me. This is beautiful, desperate shamelessness before God as she appeals to his pity. She's hard about him, but she's seeing her hope begin to slip away at this apparent rejection. Lastly, we see a faith-filled response. He doubles down, and he says to her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is crazy. Here to this mom, this desperate mom, he says to her, as she's throwing herself at Jesus' feet, he, he calls her a dog. He insults her. And this is startling, isn't it? Like a lot of the commentators that talk about this passage, they're baffled by this and they think maybe Jesus slipped up, you know, maybe, maybe he made a mistake and, and, and has to backtrack on it because he said something mean. Jesus wouldn't do that. Uh, they write with a little more eloquence than that. But, but basically, they don't understand this. And I would say it's very obvious to me and it's very obvious to you that, that there's more than meets the eye in this interaction. But make no mistake, Jesus did just call her a dog and he didn't say like, what's up dog? It wasn't like that. It's, this, is, this is something else. He is saying something really simple but it's really stark and it would stand out to everyone listening. They're all paying attention to this. The children are Israel. The children are the covenant people of God and the dogs are Gentiles. This would not be news to her. This is the way they referred to each other. And so this is just the, the way they talk. This is how Jewish people would often refer to Gentiles. But in the subtlety of his language, he actually does something that is, is quite gentle in comparison to the way uh, these, um, these words are often used. This is not the typical ku'on, which would have been a, a term of derision for those that are unclean, like a hound dog, a wild dog, something that you would use in, as an insult towards others people, uh, other people. But instead he uses kanarion, which is a much gentler word, which is more akin to like doggies doggies, household pets. He describes this, this kind of dog, like yours perhaps, that it's really part of the family, part of the household, at least in some sense. Now, make no mistake, I was talking to my wife Beth about this, and I was like, look at that. Look how he softens it. And she was like, he still called her a dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so this startles us, and we pay a, a, attention to this. But remember, this is so often what Jesus does. Right before he, he performs a miraculous miracle, he's doing something to test both the person receiving the miracle and those that are, are listening. And he often will have this back and forth exchange in order to teach something beyond the moment. There's very rarely just a healing without a point, without a teaching, without some reason for this. And before he heals and before he does anything, uh, we can miss so much by also not recognizing that, that there is tone of voice there's a look on his face, there's a, a, a look in his eyes that changes everything. How, how often are our texts or emails potentially misinterpreted because we have no body language, no facial expression, no tone of voice in order to express what we're actually feeling. And so we miss a lot of this in this interaction. But what he does is, and, and you'll see the way she seizes on this, he actually opens the door for a faith-filled response from her. He actually opens the door by saying, even the, the he, he says, I, I can't let the bread of the children go to the doggies, can I? And listen to this. I love this woman. This is so cool. I, th I think she's the only person in Scripture who wins an argument against Jesus. <laughs> and she actually accepts his analogy. And she weaves it into her final plea. And she says, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So good, isn't it? It's such a good response because what she does is she doesn't ask him to change his mission, but rather she invites him to see that, that she knows her place in it. And for her, that is enough. That's all she needs. 
She asks for nothing that does not belong to her. A crumb is enough. A crumb is enough if it's a crumb from Jesus. And she says this to him in all humility as she's fallen on her face in front of him and she looks up into the eyes of Jesus and what she sees in response to what she's just said is tenderness. That he's pleased with her response. You can picture a smile coming across the face of Jesus as he answers her. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I love this story. I love this story because we can learn so much from this woman. One thing we can learn from her is, number one, that she embraces the place the Lord gives her. Some of us are, are constantly pushing back against the place the Lord has, has put us in in this life. We, we don't like it. We, we want to change. We want to be somewhere different. We wish that we could just relocate. And she instead embraces this place the Lord gives her. She recognizes that, that compared to God Almighty, she is nothing. And we'll talk about that, that more in just a moment. She says, you, you say that I'm a, a dog? Guess what? Even the doggies get the crumbs, don't they? Secondly, she holds fast to faith even when her pleas seem to be met with silence. Some of you need to persist in your prayers. I'm not saying the frequency and repetitiveness of your prayers are, are what moves God, but he often will use our prayers in order to build our faith. To build our faith. He wants you to seek him. He wants you to depend on him. He wants you to bring your needs to him. And even when she seems to be met with silence, she keeps faith and she holds fast to her faith. Thirdly, she seeks to be aligned with his will despite obstacles. She's going to keep pressing. She's going to keep pushing. She's going to keep pursuing. And, and some of us are, are, are far too prone to give up on the things God has called us to be obedient in because we meet obstacles. This is great faith. A faith that's willing to embrace the place that God gives her because she knows that, that to be with Jesus, to receive from Jesus is better than anything else. I'm reminded of Psalm 84, verse 10, in which David says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is the, the crazy thing about this. By admitting this, by embracing her need of God, by embracing her place in him, by, by saying to him that she's no more than a dog, she shows that she has the kind of humble faith that is required to make someone a true member of the family of God. Friends, this is, this is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of the gospel because though our sin would distance us from God, and it does, Though it would keep us far off from God. What he does is he comes to our far shore. He came and he put on flesh and he came to dwell among us on a rescue mission for us. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jesus, through his death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave, he has made a way for salvation, a place at his table, if you would simply believe in him as your only savior. This is what happens for this woman. This is what is required of us. This is the miracle of the gospel. When we recognize our desperate need of him, do you know you need him? Do you know you cannot pay for your sins through your own effort, through your good works, through your external cleanliness? You cannot do it. And when you embrace the fact that you cannot that you are a beggar at his table. This is the, the miracle of the gospel. 
You receive his salvation. You receive what he has done for you on the cross and you receive a new status as sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. You go from being a dog under the table to a seat at the table. This is what this woman experiences as she sees the smile of Jesus, as she experiences his healing touch and as she is regarded as someone worthy of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that convicts us, your word that challenges us, Lord, your word that, that shows us our desperate need of you. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts like this woman to, to know our desperate need. But Lord, I pray that as, as we have come to you with filthy rags and, and as beggars unworthy of the goodness of your salvation, Lord, I pray that we would know that when we receive that salvation, our status changes instantly, that we become sons and daughters of the King. Lord, let us live like that. Let us live in the freedom and the goodness of what you have bought for us. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, who has not given their lives to you, I pray they would be like this woman. To see in humility their desperate need of Jesus Christ and you alone. And say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, I pray that you would come in. That you would minister to your church, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name.